Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Hello, everyone, and a massive welcome today to a very special musician, sound healer, and author, James Stangelo. James, it's a great privilege to be in conversation with you today. Thank you very much, Chloe. It's wonderful to be with you. I was just remembering the moment, I think, that I first met you. In fact, I first heard your voice was in around about 2003 or 2002 at the Brighton Healing Center. Yes. Yeah. I remember. I do remember. (laughs) So for those of you that may not yet have the joy of knowing James D'Angelo's extraordinary, remarkable life and output, James is an American musician and workshop leader who's been engaged in the research and practice of the healing power of sound since 1994 and has become a leading authority on sound healing therapies. James is the author of The Healing Power of the Human Voice, He's a composer, a Reiki initiate, and practitioner of sacred Sufi movements. James has also led workshops at many of the holistic health education centres in England, as well as in Scotland, Italy, Spain, Germany, Holland, and Hungary, and the USA. He has been a presenter at the International Sound Colloquiums held in the USA, the Caduceus Sound Healing Conferences, the Cambridge Light, Sound and Colour Conference, the Glastonbury Symposiums, and also the Fintorn Foundation's Visionary Voices Conference. And that doesn't touch on your remarkable output of music as a classical musician, composer and jazz musician. I've just been lucky enough to be listening to one of your CDs called The Holy City, which I believe was performed at Washington National Cathedral. Yes, that's right. Unbelievable. I'm I'm hearing so many influences in there, which somehow are very resonant with our conversation today, which is on the nature of compassion and what your understanding of compassion is, how music is an influence within our understanding of compassion and how it contributes to compassionate action in the world and how it's shown up in your life. Mm, it's such a marvelous question and a deep question indeed. First of all, compassion is seeing all beings as being as one. I mean, that's the foundation 
whatever their personalities are, it goes beyond that. We make choices in our life of whom we uh, associate with, but nonetheless, we have to see, as if you want to use the Indian term, the Atman, that sort of divine spark in everyone. And when you do, you feel it. I I suppose I feel it even more so being a Pisces, (laughs) Uh (laughs) being we're supposed to be the compassionate sign. Who knows? I won't say more about that. Oceanic presence, isn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> yeah, going well. We are part of the mutables. It's, <laughs> it is going with the flow, much more going with the flow and having less resistance. When I write music, I'm not thinking about the audience as such, you know, what will please them, what will not please them. My music isn't particularly dissonant, for example, but that's not my choice. It's just what is given to me that it is the way it is. And if the music awakens this spirit of compassion in them, well, that's marvelous. One doesn't know what the experience is going to be, but it somehow has to get beyond the surface. See, style is interesting because now we live in a world of pluricity of styles to choose from, you know. Going back to Mozart's time, he was a very fortunate composer. He was born into a style which he perfected in his own way. But we have to make a style. How does that come to be? It just is. It's still going beyond the style. Yeah. But the language is important so that the audience isn't immediately put off by the sounds. Oh, my God, I can't listen to that. So that you do have to get past a certain resistance, and then it begins to go to the deeper levels. So music and compassion, it's just giving out the music. It's a very difficult thing to speak about why does one pursue having your music performed? Because it is partly ego. There's no question in my mind that it is, that you, mm-hmm. it's your personal desire. You want the music to be out there. But at another level, it has nothing to do with that because it's your personal will, whereas there is a universal will that says, I'm sorry, this is not what is going to be. I have composers, you know, I know who complain because musicians don't want to play their music. But there's a reason behind that. There has to be. There's purpose behind everything. So, yes, this um, feeling of compassion is about knowing I could be that person. I could be that person. I had a friend once who uh, was very close to him, and he did something, and it was a revelation. I said, I could be that man. All I have to do is is go a little bit further. He was a schizophrenic. Wow. Wow. Uh, That is a continuum. How much between sanity and insanity am I? Yes. And it's a continuum. The whole connection between psychosis and enlightenment itself. Is, That's right. Yes, it's indeed. really close in, isn't it? Of course, you know? of course it is. Of course it is. And we have to separate the creative being of an individual from his or her personality. Yes. So we might not like to be in the presence of Mozart as a person, but we certainly want to be listening to that music. So that's the other thing, dichotomy. That's why Salieri in that Amadeus film, he, he was baffled. How can a man so crude as Mozart write such gorgeous heavenly music? Yeah. There it is. It's, it's, there's compassion there. All right. Uh, I can't have a friendly relationship with you, but I think your music is marvelous, you know? I remember talk, people talking about Mahatma Gandhi and yeah. 
you know, and then Nisargadatta Maharaj. You know, these are people that have incredibly, almost like a quite rajasic, yep. you know, uh, personalities are, are in the human yes. being. And yet, you know, at a service level, and I, I, perhaps what we're talking about here is, is, is how the musician can train the egoic mind to serve the higher, deeper purpose of the music itself in the world, something like that. Well, a composer that I was very much influenced by, I think he forms part of my style, is Paul Hindemith. And um, he was quite keen about the so-called ethical and moral purpose of music, that it, that it had to have this character. But you can't construct it. It has to emerge and flow through you. That's the point. I remember reading an advert about new age music and it said, this is channeled music. And I thought, well, then what is Mozart's music? It's all channeled. I mean, they were making, you know, a big deal that it was channeled. All great music is channeled. Yes. It's a receiving, isn't it? It's a receiving. It's a receiving. I mean, when I hear my music performed, I actually say to myself, how did I write that? I don't, I don't even remember the process, you know. Yeah. I remember going into Gloucester Cathedral and the choir was rehearsing a piece. And I thought, that sounds familiar. What is that? It was my own music. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, that, that was a that was that, perfect example. Of I it. love that. I love yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Literally caught, caught off guard by your own self. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. But that really does convince me that, I mean, I'm listening to your music this morning and I'm hearing such um, elevated sound. I mean, you cannot help when you're listening to this music to to feel, uh, you know, a lightness of being. But also it's very rooted. I'm fascinated by the influence of Hindemith. Mm. Um, I'd love to hear more about that and, and how you came as a child, even in your younger life. How did this all come about? I knew I had the spark because I was doing a lot of piano improvisation. I wish I had recordings of now of all of that. I did it secretly. My teacher did not know. My parents assumed I was just practicing for lessons. I mean, they, they didn't know either. And how I would do it is I would create, it was like writing for films. I, I would create an imaginary story in my mind and play the underscore at the piano. And I had no idea how, and my hands were just going to these chords. I, it, was, it, was, it was very wonderful. I mean, I reflect back on it. So I had the traditional studies, of course, piano, then eventually woodwinds, I did clarinet and saxophone, played in dance bands and played in jazz trios and what have you. The Hindemith connection, I don't know. It's, 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 um, it just came to be. I heard one of his pieces, which is probably the most accessible. It's, it's variations on themes of, of Karl Maria von Weber, 19th century German composer. And... I listened to other music, something in it, something about the style just took to me that it was it was contemporary and yet it wasn't, you know, so jagged. 
was an Arnold Schoenberg or something like that. It's an amazing triangle going on here because then I came in contact with Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk, writer and poet, and I've set nine poems of his to music. And the connection is that the three of us, Hindemith, Merton and myself, were all monks in the same order in a past life. There's no question now about that. And Merton and Hindemith actually had a relationship. That's what's so interesting. Hindemith came to Merton and said, could you write me a text for a kind of oratorio piece? But Hindemith didn't like it and didn't use it. But anyway, there you are. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. You're reminding me, actually, because I used to play the clarinet and I used to play his sonatas. Uh, yeah, well, there was just one. <laughs> oh, maybe, maybe that's the one and only one I played. <laughs> the one and only, that's it. <laughs> it felt <laughs> like a lot more than one. No, but it, it's remarkable. Yeah. He wrote a sonata for every instrument of the orchestra. Well, with the strings, he wrote more. Yeah. Well, I, it's amazing because I haven't even thought about that piece of music, actually, for, for many years. But I'm hearing it as you're describing it. And I'm also hearing your Piscean, you know, talking about your Piscean nature. I'm sure Hindemith had to be a Pisces as well. When I think well, he was water. He was Scorpio. And he was okay. highly Scorpio. If you look at his chart, uh-huh. highly Scorpio. I think six planets in Scorpio. He was very dedicated. I mean, I think he was the greatest all-around musician of the 20th century because of all the activities that he engaged in teaching, starting early music groups, giving lectures, composing, going around the world, conducting. It's no wonder why he died at age 68. He must have been worn out from all that activity. Incredible. So I love this connection with with, uh, yourself, with Hindemith and Thomas Merton as well, because that... Merton's a wonderful... I'm so attracted to him, and I can only believe that there wasn't a former life association with him. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, another really, I mean, a musical life, but not musically expressed, so to speak, but through the words and through his relationship with silence, you know, and the whole monastic um, yes. embodiment of, of, of what that means to embody silence at that depth. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. Oh, Merton yeah. in silence. Yes, that was a key word mm-hmm. in, in all his writings. I mean, I think I sense for you as well, because obviously we, we have the connection through the uh, College House and the, the Study Society in London. Yes. So I'm very aware of, of your work there and your practice there, obviously, of the Sufi turning and so on. Yes, the turning. I've come now to an age where I, I don't think it's possible to do the movements and go through a whole ceremony. And- so it ended about a year ago, but I can still play passive roles of the sheikh, mm. the, the immovable one who stands there through the ceremonies mm. as a kind of representative of the Godhead, mm. and or what's called a samasan bashi, the leader of the listeners. It's interesting because the Sufis are listening. They're turning and listening. Your head is turned to the side and you're putting your ear down towards your heart. Listen to your heart. The Samasand Bashi is someone who guides the turners and makes sure nothing goes awry. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So it's been wonderful. I turned for 50 years, five O years. Beautiful. Uh, Beautiful. Pretty much without, first in New York, because the Study Society allowed us to have it in New York. Then when I came to England, continued. Yeah. Wow. Obviously, that's the actual external turning is metaphoric of the inner turning, isn't it? Of the, of the metanoia of the soul. Oh, yeah. oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. It, it proves that you can come to yourself mm. in movement. 
Mm. It doesn't have to be that you're sitting down and just meditating. Some people call it a moving meditation. Mm. Uh, yeah. Some will compare it to our solar system. You see, when the shake in the final period of turning comes into the center point and we're all whirling around him, it's just it's like that. And it might well have something to do with the world of the chakra system. I think so, yes. Do you follow up on that? Because that's been a very integral part of your own teaching of others, isn't it, in the healing power of sound? Yes. I don't I don't make the comparison in the courses I lead about that. But mm-hmm. the chakra system seems to be the best place into which to direct sounds. If you're going to direct sounds in an inner way, then mm-hmm. lead then into a meditation on those sounds. Mm-hmm. I thought of over the years, that's what I came to. In the beginning, I was trying all sorts of things. I was experimenting, researching, and practicing on myself to see. For example, I did something called the Atlantean Chants, okay. channeled by Frank Alper, Ooh. so-called metaphysician in Arizona at the time. And uh, I, I do like them. I don't teach them anymore. Thought people would think it's a bit far out. I don't know. But they're mm. wonderful little pieces of chant a lot of them sound hebraic uh-huh. uh, i don't know why i feel this like hebrew i like movement being added to sounds and so i put movements to the atlantean chants as well at the time but even now movement encourages the sound it directs the sound and it gives yeah. more impetus to the intent and the emotion right And I mean, this completely changes and transforms the whole experience of what music is for people that aren't necessarily kind of in the traditional sense of musically trained, but that they can access their own, uh, you know, the music of the soul, whatever that means for them. Once you experience it as a, a meditative or an energy movement, you then are aware that it's so much more than just what's coming out of the mouth. Yes, and... You know, it's it's so simple in the end. You don't have to teach people complex Sanskrit chants. I work with just vowels, consonances, and seed syllables. Okay. But it's how you do it. I say to them, you sacralize the music. You bring something to it. There's inherent power in our own very simple language. Yeah. You yeah. see? And I use the example of who, W-H-O versus the Sufi who. Uh-huh. Uh, same sound, one seem, is ordinary, secular, and the other one is sacred. How is that? It's because the Sufis have a faith in that sound, that this is one of the sounds of God. Oh, and for a human being, an ordinary human being, human being, to actually access that understanding, it's this close, isn't it? It's just a second away, it's not even a second. Yes, yes, yes. Well, the who man is literally the mind of God from the manas of Sanskrit, the mind and who is God. So it's, if you want to see it, that word that way, that's what a who man is and a who woman. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't it interesting, though, that why it is that so many of us who man beings are so terrified of that how? You know, this idea that how do I do this? Somebody else has surely has to teach me this thing you know because we've been so sort of conditioned to believe that music comes from somebody else who knows who's an expert who knows something and it's something we have to learn rather than it's something that we are we are music yes yes yeah everyone is musical 
Yeah. Everyone has this capacity. The mm-hmm. fact that we are able to mimic any sound that we hear immediately. And I say, do, do whatever I tell them. They can do it. Yeah. Uh, just sliding the voice. They might not have ever done it. Perhaps as a child, because as a child, you are doing sound therapy. You listen to children, they're making all sorts of sounds. And I tell them, when you make any sound when you're in pain or you're in joy, this is an expression. It's all a musical expression, whatever you know, this word music is. So interesting, isn't it? And obviously both you and I have been very blessed to have the traditional musical training as well. Oh, but yes. It sounds to me like you accessed, I mean, the fact that you were sitting there at your piano as a child and literally deciding not to tell anyone uh, that, you know, you'd accessed, you'd happened upon your, your own musical imagination. How would you describe what that was? How did your hands know to play the piano like that? You know, I did. Yes, exactly. How yeah. did it? I knew I was connected to the piano because I would be taken about maybe very early years to my grandparents' home and they had an upright piano and I would go immediately, I would go over to the piano and I would start slapping at the keys as though I knew how to play the piano. So this is, you know, one of the proofs that we have this, this continuity of life and that reincarnation is true. You know, we not that we want it, by the way, because according, you know, that's what the great tradition is escape the wheel of birth and death. Right. You don't have to come back to Earth. Right. You, can, you can move on to other dimensions, other planets, uh, finer planets, or, or just be in spirit. So um, this is a short little run for us on Earth. <laughs> oh, it's incredible, isn't it? But, and coming back on, on that note, in fact, coming back to the whole theme of how that understanding that you've just literally so beautifully described, how that impacts our relationship with form, with matter, with our attachment to saving the earth, to, to taking care of it, and, and what, what part compassion plays in this so it's kind of we're not attached to being here but at the same time this is one of the most beautiful planets that we've ever encountered even though it's just like a little speck of dust in the galaxies you know and yet at the same time it's this kind of koan isn't it between attachment and non-attachment to the beauty of form Uh, yes well chloe you have said it this is one of the key problems of our existence walking the line between attachment and detachment we're supposed to be allowed to enjoy this life uh, and at the same time not get caught up in it well this is the miracle if you can if you can achieve that to more or less extent this is very 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 wise to be in in that way i i know i know that so the people who have compassion for the earth it's rightly so we if we're going to be here be stewards of the earth But not to get so worked up that because I want to save my life, because if I save the earth, I'm saving my own personal life. Right. So it doesn't, we don't go down the drain. So the people who work for Greenpeace, I mean, for example, they they must be attached because in order to to work so hard at, at, at keeping the bad guys from doing what they're doing. Yeah. The main thing for me is not to feel guilty if I'm not an activist. Right. <laughs> well, that whole understanding of what activism truly is, isn't it? It's, it's yes. A, yeah. 
That's a whole yes. lot of prophecy. Look, have oh. compassion, but have it in the immediate vicinity of where you are. You know, if everyone did their own patch, mm. we'd be fine. You know, we don't have to take on the troubles of the whole world. Right, no. right. You could give to these to charities, as I can suppose the least you could do. Mm. You know. And one of the great blessings, of course, of the internet is the way in which it's allowing for us to connect in this way, but also for the whole kind of diaspora of world music to be offering itself to to humanity at the moment. I mean, it's just, I'm finding it so moving mm. watching how ordinary people who've basically, many of whom will have said, I haven't got a voice, I, I you know, I can't find it, you know, are literally finding themselves tenement buildings up in Scotland on their balconies singing here comes the sun you know because their local heroes made that amazing tune you know yeah. and then the, the, the people in Italy and then now in Berlin they're singing Omtara in the center of Berlin just sitting there very quietly and then now I was so relieved to see the George Floyd protests turning into this more peaceful candlelit you know lean on me singing in Washington, you know, and you're sort of like, wow, this is amazing. What is possible? What human beings are capable of accessing? And why is it that we need a virtual third world war and the need for this kind of attachment to the presence of an enemy in order for us to rally and say, right, okay, now we've got to do something. Ah, let's sing. You know, it's like we don't need an enemy anymore, do we, to actually realise we can sing. We can sing like we have never sung. Yes, yes. You access that quality Mm. that because your your normal, so-called normal life has stopped. Good. A gap has been made, which is what is basic spiritual teaching in day-to-day life. Make gaps stop. Make a gap. Have that pause to remember, what am I doing? Well, who am I? You know, this reflection is essential if you're oh. going to have this so-called detachment and and yet commitment at the same time. Well, I mean, James, there's no question that you have basically been so prominent as a, as a healing presence in many people's lives, you know, in terms of their finding their own sound. And then also this huge outpouring of, of compositions that have been thankfully performed. So where where does that leave you now? What's giving you most joy now? In what way are you bringing most compassion to yourself now at this time? This is a question I'm posing to, to myself indeed. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many more years I have. I'm in, I'm in fairly good health I'm in, in good energy, still able to go out there. So I have tremendous gratitude for that. I used to, maybe I sometimes still do think that this gathering of people that, that we do every so often called workshop called a course i would like it to be every day and to live in a community of people it does limit it says i'm only with these people now every day i'm not uh, traveling all over and, and connecting to others maybe not even on the internet this is my community and we have to build a whole series of these communities that would be the best future for for the planet i will um, still continue to compose i've got a thomas merton project that i'm just delving into an undiscovered manuscript unpublished and it was intended to be set to music isn't it amazing so i i just feel it's destined for me wow 
Yes, I know. It's about the Tower of Babel and then the transformation to the second coming of Christ and the Word. So it gradually moves out of Babylon into, so to speak, to the city of God. But it's a big idea. I have to understand the text because of the illusions in Merton's own mind of what he was talking about. So I very much like to see it through. I'd like to get back to live courses and workshops because I've got a course going now on Zoom and it doesn't work. <laughs> I, uh-huh. Well, it works, but it, if you know what I mean. It's it, not the same. There's no question. But it's not the same and the vibrations of all the people mm-hmm. coming together in one space is missing mm-hmm. and which would give them uh, even more than they realize. Even now they're writing to me saying um, how much they're getting from it. They yeah. don't realize how much more they would be if they were being supported by the other voices in one space. Yes, mm. yes. But there is something, what I'm noticing with these courses is that there is something about the connection with silence because it, because one can't actually focus on the outer sound in the same way as you would if it was live, mm. there's something about the, the, the silence and the listening that is required of people and of each other mm. that is, is really quite profound, I'm finding. I don't know whether that's the same. I'm, I'm astonished to find myself giving a course for the shift network at the moment. Yes. And interestingly enough, because I decided not to teach it in the, the normal way that I would with, with the sort of sound templates and, and vibrational body-centered singing practices being the front face of the description of the course, I decided to turn it around and say, how can music, how can the voice, how can sound, how can non-judgmental listening, how can that assist us to navigate, for example, the journey from our identity with self-isolation into the sanctuary of solitude, you know, so to kind of shift this identity of being imprisoned by separateness, you know, and by this this kind of illusion of separateness into a completely other relationship with being alone. And what part can our voices, our inner voices, our outer voices play in that in that investigation. So the description of it is express the music of your soul, and that's something that I suppose is very accessible for people. But then the subtitle they chose was To Release Trauma, Fear, Separateness, Shame. (laughs) You know, and and people love that. Yes, they do. You know, because it's the psychological safety that people feel with that level of, you know, relating to your voice as talking therapy. Uh, which which has its own value, of course. But I think what you and I are listening into here in this dialogue is a depth of listening that takes us even beneath the narrative, the psychological narrative, into a, a depth of, of presence with oneself where one can feel entirely at home, you know, with sound or no sound. Yes, yes, of course. And, and, and there has to be an equality between sound and silence. Right. Silence has to. The very nature of things follows the sound. I tell the people when they go into the silence, listen to your experience. I try not to direct them to, to a particular place in themselves. Just listen, not, not even the word observe. Listen to your experience now. 
and that's that's it so that everyone has their own experience if i ask for sharing i'm sure you know this the range of what people experience as a result of one particular sound ritual is quite wide yes yes phenomenal isn't it yes indeed and it's deeply touching isn't it it just reminds us that at the heart of our lives is this capacity to to hear ourselves and to be heard you know and to realize that who we are is something so mysterious and and so magical and so wondrous that it returns us to our childhood nature in a way it has the potential doesn't it to return us to that extraordinary experiences one has as a child as you had there at the piano Um, yes you know i mean let us quote from the new testament and jesus says if you can't be as these little children you cannot enter the kingdom of god oh that's a big one and so how do we become as those little children Of course, he doesn't mean childishness. He means the innocence, the openness to what they are. Well, James, my goodness me, I just feel we've hardly begun. We're just sort of opening up so many beautiful landscapes of of listening and awareness. And I thank you so much for embarking on this dialogue with me. And it's, it's an incredible privilege to share with you in this way and to be able to share this understanding with others as well so i thank you so much and thank you so much for your music which i'm have it on unstoppably at the moment (laughs) (laughs) thank you i feel equally the same Mm -hmm. in in making this sharing this morning Mm -hmm. great offering bless you and thank you so much for being with us here in the voce dialogues at this unprecedented time Mm. thank you so much many blessings many blessings Thank you. The sound inside.